Kate taking up the offering there? Yeah. Listen, you can't have a a little two-year-old hand you the offering basket and not put money in it. (laughs) It's, we're shameless manipulators at the vineyard. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting us use your children that way. Oh, my gosh. There's always something new here. It's always something new. Hey, uh, happy Easter. Okay, that was kind of tepid. Let me try that again. Happy Easter. Okay, that's a little better. Thank you. Now, let me, I'm going to give you a little, a little uh, a joke. Let's see how many of you get it, okay? So, seriously, after church today, I would prefer that none of you walk up to me and say, uh, Pastor John... You're kind of stuck in, in a preaching rut. You're always preaching about the resurrection. Every time I come, you're preaching about the resurrection. Okay, Let's let that sit for a minute. Just let that sit for just a minute. Just like a fine wine. Just sit with that. Is that anybody, is that, anybody get that? I told to a few people, and people are looking at me like, oh, yeah, okay. It took a little while. Okay. You're not supposed to take a shot at the congregation before you preach, but I couldn't resist it anyway. So, uh, most everybody knows that Easter is associated with uh, hope. It's associated with, you know, positive things. Even people who only have a passing grasp of Easter uh, aren't church-going people, maybe, you know, don't have any kind of relationship with Christians. There's enough of it in our culture about Easter Easter lilies, you know, uh, born again, all that, that people get that that's what Easter is about. And there's, there's kind of an anticipation that people come to Easter gatherings with. But the first, when, when we're going to look at the story of Easter. The first Easter morning was not in any way associated with hope. In fact, it was the exact opposite. It was, it was associated and so in despair and discouragement and heartbreak in a way that it's hard for us to get our heads around. So I want to I acquaint you with the, the first Easter Sunday, because to hear why Easter has hope, we kind of have to walk into the story a bit. And the story of Easter comes to this point of uh, expectation that I want to tell you about that the Jewish people had and then it just gets crushed bitterly. So Easter is a week, in a sense, that people celebrate. Uh, Palm Sunday is the, the week, it's the Sunday before Easter, and it's the day that, that we observe Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And when Jesus came into Jerusalem, uh, the week before he was crucified, uh, you couldn't have come into town on a higher note most of the city went out to greet Jesus as he came into town, and they greeted him like he was a, a, the king that they'd been looking for. He was the Messiah. The, the, the three years of Jesus just going all throughout Israel, up and down through Israel. Uh, we, historians know there was about 137 or so villages. Jesus went to every single one of them, and he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he fed multitudes, he turned people's lives upside down, he broke down barriers, he dealt with injustice. I mean, it, and, 
And the tide of Jesus' popularity was rising to the point when he came into the city of Jerusalem, and he came in in a curious way. He rode on a, a, a donkey into town. And that was not the way that kings tended to come into town. And everybody believed that he was the Messiah that they'd been hoping for. But, and this is the, this is the thing you've got to get your head around. They, though, wanted him to be a certain kind of Messiah. And, and the word Messiah, it, it, it means, it's kind of a transliteration of a, a Jewish word. It means anointed one. That somebody that God is with them in an unusual way. And what the Messiah, they they thought was going to do was he was going to come in and he was going to bring in the good old days that Israel had enjoyed under King David when Israel was uh, at the top of the heap. They were the superpower of, of the whole region of the Middle East. And nobody fought them because no one could defeat them. And the Romans, at this point, when Jesus is on the scene, he comes on the scene, the Romans have conquered Israel. And so Israel is occupied territory. They're just being taxed to death. Everything about their lives is difficult. And Jesus has, has given them all the indications that he is this Messiah that they've been waiting for. But, and this is the problem that, that we oftentimes have, people who try to engage Jesus on their own terms are always let down. Because Jesus won't become the answer to our problems if we want to stay in charge of our lives. Because the problem we have, the problems we have, come from us being in charge of our lives. And Israel wanted Jesus to be their kind of king. Just like a lot of times we want God to do what we want. We want him to fix the problems that we create and just keep fixing them no matter how many we create. And the Jewish people, had their hope was in that kind of a Messiah. He was going to come in. He was going to drive the Romans out and defeat them and put Israel back on top. Oh, happy day. That's what they were looking for. And so when Jesus came into town, he was riding on a donkey instead of on the traditional, uh, you know, huge horse that, that kings would come into town on. And he was sending a signal, I am a king, but I'm a different kind of king. And I'm the king of a kingdom, but it's a different kind of kingdom. And I am coming to set you free, but it's a different kind of freedom than you think. So they think he's coming into town, and each day, so when he comes into town the people are saying Hosanna, they're singing songs, they're waving palm branches. This, these are traditional forms of greeting for, for, the, for conquering kings. And each day after Palm Sunday, it's like it built. The excitement built, and it built, and it built, and it built, until on Passover night, Jesus was arrested secretly, he was taken and tried by the Jewish authorities, and they didn't have any power to kill him. That's what they wanted to do. They couldn't kill him. The Romans said, you can, you can govern your country, but we have the power of life and death. And so after Jesus was arrested and he was beaten, they had to take, the Jewish people had to take 
the Jewish authorities had to take Jesus to the Romans. And then he had to have a public Roman trial. And then he was publicly crucified, which was, you know, a, a, a terrible way to execute people. It was, it, was, it was just torturing someone. Oftentimes people would hang on a cross for days. And all the people at the end of this, when Jesus came out, and all the people who had been so excited to see him come into their city, they were so expecting the Messiah. Again, they're the kind of Messiah they wanted. When they saw him all beaten up and in chains and bound and at the feet of, of the Roman governor, they turned on him and they said, uh, when, when, the, when the Roman governor offered to let him off the hook, because that was a tradition on the Passover celebration, the Roman government would, let, would forgive one, one criminal. And he offered to forgive Jesus, and they said, no, we don't want Jesus. They, we want Barabbas, this other criminal. And so they began to yell, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate said, listen, you know, I'm not guilty of this. This is on you. He washed his hands symbolically in a basin of water to say, this is on you. And the people said, sure, we'll own that. And they took Jesus out, and he was publicly crucified. And then to compound the, uh, the humiliation of going to the cross, the people came by and mocked him and said, oh, he said he's the Savior. He said he's the Messiah. If he is, let him come down from the cross. And then he publicly suffered, and then he died on the cross. And then the the Romans let the Jews, uh, the, the, the followers of Jesus, take his body down, and they put him in a tomb because it was the, the Passover was starting. So it was the night before the Passover. The Passover was starting. And that was their, their uh, uh, that, that had to be the worst Sabbath anybody had ever experienced. You can just imagine that. Had to be the very, very worst Sabbath that, that anybody could ever have experienced. And so we're going to start reading, if you, if you would open your Bibles with me, in John chapter 20, we're reading the story that begins what we call Easter Sunday, that begins when one of the women, Mary, goes to the tomb, and she wants to bring some spices and things, and they're going to, because they couldn't prepare Jesus' body for burial, because his, he died so late in the day that they couldn't give him a proper burial. So uh, Mary and probably some other women were going to attend to this job. So that's the frame of mind that Mary and the other people who you're going to see in the story come into this story with. They had hoped Jesus was everything that they thought he was and more. And so now they're going to his grave. Starting in John 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and that's, that means John, who's the author of the book. He's an eyewitness to this. She came running to Peter and the other disciple Jesus loved and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
He bent over and looked at the, in at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand, though, and then John adds an editorial comment, but they still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So Mary comes into this scene, sees the stone rolled away. She runs back and gets the other disciples, and she thinks that they've stolen, somebody's stolen Jesus' body. Peter goes into the tomb, and there's, there's, there's different words. It's very subtle. We don't, we don't get the, the, the subtlety of the explanation, but when, when they come in, there's, there's three different words that are used for what they're seeing. And the first word is they just see it. And then the second word is the, is the word theoreo, and it's the word where they looked, and they're trying to make sense of it. Like, where's his body? And, if, and why is, why is the, the, the grave clothes laid the way they are? And they're, you know, they were just trying to make sense of this. What went on? If, there, if this is a grave robber, the grave robber would have stolen the body and taken everything. They wouldn't have, it wouldn't have looked like this. But they, they didn't believe that Jesus was raised from the grave. They just didn't believe that. I'll explain why in a second. So John says about his experience there when he went in and looked and saw all the things as they were. It says he believed in Jesus, but he said, himself says, I still didn't get it. I didn't get it. Because here's the, here's the way Jewish people believed about resurrection. They believed in the resurrection of the dead that would happen at the end of days. That at the very end of history, God was going to stop history and he was going to bring judgment on all wickedness and evil. And he was going to raise everyone from the dead and start everything over. Everything was going to be made new at the end of history. Pagan, some pagans believed in life after death. But they didn't believe it would, it would be an embodied existence because in the pagan world, like the Greek world, the Roman world, they saw the body as something that was like a, a tomb that you were stuck in. And the idea of being raised from the grave wouldn't include being in a body because that would be unthinkable to them. And then there were a lot of pagan philosophers who just believed there wasn't anything after you die. You just die. That's it. And you shouldn't be afraid of it because it's just like falling asleep and then boom. But the Jews had a completely different view. They believed in the resurrection. If you, if you remember when, uh, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, one of, Jesus, one of Lazarus' sisters, when Jesus said, do you believe I'm the resurrection and the life? She says, yes, I believe one day we're all going to be raised. And that's what the Jewish people believed. And the thing was, about Messiahs and death and resurrection... Uh, N.T. Wright, who's one of the world's most uh, well-known and, and well-respected New Testament scholars, here's what he said. He said, around the time of Jesus, you know, a couple decades before and up to and, and then a few decades after Jesus, there was all these messianic movements where a certain person rose up and said, I'm the Messiah, and they tried to lead the Jewish people 
uh, out from under Roman occupation. And every time that happened, they were all killed, just like Jesus was killed. But not one single one of them, and they, they said there's, a, we know of, historians know of at least a dozen of those Messianic Jewish movements. Not one time after their Messiah was killed did they say he rose again because that's not what any of them believed what they did was when their messiah was killed they'd go find his brother or cousin or uncle or somebody related to him to to stand up and say i'm the messiah and then to try to you know lead the jewish people into revolt again over uh, the romans so the idea of a crucified Messiah was an oxymoron. And John's saying, I just didn't get it. I didn't, I didn't get it. I, I believe in Jesus still, that somehow he's the son of God. But John says at that point, I didn't understand. Jesus had said over and over and over and over, I'm going to die. And they didn't understand that. Because how could the Messiah die? And then I'm going to be raised from the dead on the third day. And they go, how can that happen? We all know the resurrection only happens at the end of days. So this was totally surprising. Some people think that the whole idea of resurrection was sort of baked into the disciples, and they were just ready to believe it. You can see here they didn't. They didn't believe that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. Their hopes were totally crushed. So the, the first followers of Jesus... As we see, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But we're going to look at next. They began to be forced to rethink their views based on this, a new experience they started having. So let's start reading in verse 10. So then the disciples went back to their homes. So that's Peter and John and some others. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Now that word crying there is a word that means un controllable weeping. She is utterly crushed. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw, and there's that word again, she sees something and she starts trying to think about this. She sees two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been one at the head and the other at the foot. So they're, usually they will, in these burial tombs, they'll, they'll, be a, they'll carve into the wall of the limestone a, a place for the body to lay. And where Jesus' body had been laying, there was an angel at either end, and like Peter saw, there was all the grave clothes. And they, so they would wrap a dead body in grave clothes, and then they'd have a separate wrap around its, their head. And what they're, what they're describing is it's like the body disappeared through the grave clothes. And the grave clothes were just laying there. And they're all looking at this and going, this doesn't make any sense. What, what, what could this mean? And so she's looking at this. And they asked, the, the two angels asked her, and this is, the, the, the grammar of this is, it's a very gentle question, okay? She's weeping. She's inconsolable. Woman, why are you crying? And you may think, wow, that's kind of, that's a, gosh, that's, that doesn't seem like a very sensitive question. But one of the things that, that you'll see about this is Jesus, when he comes to us and engages us, 
he, he wants to know what's really going on inside us. He wants to bring the things that are deep inside us to the surface. And she was weeping because she didn't believe. She was weeping because she held on to something that, that, in light of the truth, didn't make sense. And it was breaking her heart. And they were, starting to, they were trying to draw her into, an, into looking at that and rethinking it. And she wasn't quite ready to do that. But so what she said was, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. So she's talking to these angels. She's overwhelmed with grief. And, you know, sometimes you, I don't know if you ever sense someone's like behind you or looking at you. She turns around and she thinks it's the gardener, but it's Jesus. She doesn't recognize him yet. And so Jesus says, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned towards him, because again, he's saying all this behind her. Rabboni. And she cried out and she, she falls on the ground and just clings to him and begins to weep and cry. And here's what he says. Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. So there's this way that Jesus engaged her that, that if, if you can take a second with me and linger over this little exchange between her and Jesus, it, it, it says something to us. So she's gone back into the tomb and she's looking in at it and she's, and she's trying to sort out. She didn't just accept, there's something inside her that said, I don't get this, but there's, I, I think I need to look at this. I think I need to wrestle with this. And sometimes when we hear the gospel and aspects of the gospel, we're quick to look at it and go, eh, eh. I, I, I knew it was a fairy tale. I knew it was just all whatever, you know, it's made up. And we just go back to our lives and, and we're trying to figure out, okay, this thing, this Jesus thing didn't work out for me, didn't pan out. So I gotta, now I got to go find something else. Because my hopes have been raised. And Peter and John go away, and they're wrestling with this. But they don't stay there and wrestle like Mary is. And so Mary goes in. And you see, this is the thing. If, if you'll be open, if, if you're here and maybe you're a little skeptical, maybe you're not at the place yet where you've ever really said yes to Jesus. I want to completely follow Jesus. I encourage you to look at Mary's example because she's showing us that if you will engage God with an open heart, that you'll start figuring out the truth. If you close your heart off and close your mind to the possibilities of faith, God will just let you go. He, he won't push you away, but he'll just say, you know, you're on your own. But Mary with all the pain that she was feeling, with all the heartbreak and the loss, she moved towards this scene that was so confusing. 
and she opened herself up, and Jesus came and met her there. And Jesus said to her, <clears throat> when, when she saw it was him, she, he said her name. And this is the thing God will do for you. I've experienced it when, when I first heard the gospel. I can tell you the thing about hearing the good news about Jesus that struck me as much as anything else that first night I heard the gospel my freshman year in college, back in 1973. It's a long time ago. But I can tell you to this day, I can remember it like it was yesterday, was I remember when this young guy was up on a stage just like this, and there were hundreds of us, hundreds of like long-haired kids like me back then, and he was sharing the good news about Jesus, and I felt like he kept looking at me and just talking to me. It was like I was the only person in the room. In fact, at a certain point, I honestly thought these, these kids that invited me, I kept looking over at him with a little bit of the evil eye. Like, what did you tell this guy about me? You know, this is a setup. I really, I, I had that go through my mind. This is a setup. I knew these Christians, you know, they want me to drink the weird Kool-Aid after this. But the more he talked, it just spoke to me. It's just like this situation. Jesus said, Mary. Boom, her eyes are open. He knows your name. He wants a relationship with you. So when Mary sees him, because her heart is open to that, and she realizes it's Jesus, he isn't dead, she falls on her feet, because that was a, a, a common position for the disciples around Jesus, as they were in wonder and awe of him constantly. And she clings to his leg and she's crying. And he isn't saying, don't touch me, you know, you're defiling me. What he's saying is, this isn't, you know, I'm not leaving. This is just the start. And then he infers something. He says, I'm going to go to the Father. And if you read the Gospel of John over and over, Jesus said to his disciples, like he said at one point, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. I'm going to be rejected by the, by the, the leaders and they're going to kill me and I'm going to die. And they were all heartbroken. He said, it's better for you that, if, that I die, because if I die, I'll return to the Father, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to live in you. And this will be more, my love will be more real to you than anything you've ever experienced. And so when he says to them, he's reminding them, when he says, I'm going to my Father, they know the Holy Spirit's going to come, that God's presence is going to come back on the earth, not just in a person, but in every person. In every place. Because remember, the, the, I, I've said this to you many times, the narrative of the Bible starts with God creating this beautiful place, a garden, where people lived and he was present on the earth fully to them. And then they chose to go their own way and his presence lifted off and his presence was just kind of here and there. But he meant for us to experience him dwelling in us where it becomes this relationship, because it says that, that they would walk through the garden and he would walk with them. And that sounds kind of, you know, like, wow, that's a cool idea, but it just, it, is that some, isn't that poetic metaphor? Isn't that some image of, you know, an idyllic setting that we'll never see again? No. Jesus comes to speak to each of us 
and, and live within us through the person of the Holy Spirit, God's presence indwelling us. And so what she was experiencing there with, with Jesus, personally, physically, he's saying, I want you to know this, and I want everybody to know this at all times, and so that's why I have to return to the Father. Then the Spirit's going to come, because I'm, I'm in a physical body. He was in a physical body over and over and over. He revealed himself to them. He's in this physical, glorified body that's the same kind of body that one day everybody who follows him and believes him is going to have. It's a body that's not going to suffer death and pain anymore. It's not going to get sick. It's not going to age. It's not going to experience all the, the breakdowns that we all experience. Because there isn't anybody in this room that doesn't have a doctor. You know that? A couple years back on Facebook, I, I, had, a, I had a little Facebook uh, post, and I said, hey, let's see, let's have a contest. Let's see who has, takes the most prescription drugs every day. I said, post on here how many, just post a number. And of course, I, at my age, I have a lot of friends, and I have a lot of friends who take a lot of drugs, apparently. Because as, as they post it, you know, you see their name and then there's a number. I have friends who are in double digits every day, okay? But we all get acquainted with doctors when we're kids. They're called pediatricians. Right from the get-go, we realize this world is not what it should be. And so Jesus is telling Mary and his disciples, listen, change has come. It's not coming. Change has come. The implications of, of, of all of it ha, had not in any way settled in, in these people's minds. But Mary just realizes he's alive, right? He's alive. And so she immediately gets up, and this is what she tells the disciples. Everything's changed. Jesus is alive. And he calls you his brothers, family. He says, I'm going back to my father. Tell him I'm going back to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And he's saying that if, when you have faith in me, you become family with God. Your family, sons and daughters. This was crazy news to them. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine because we have all kinds of learning and experience and teachings. But in this moment, Nothing could be more surprising than this moment. And here's the, the crazy thing. What makes this story credible? Because people, honestly, people, when I talk about my belief in the resurrection of Jesus, if that's the cornerstone of my faith in God, they go, nobody rises from the dead. It's just impossible. We know that. I mean, John, look at your body. Your body is not getting stronger. It's getting weaker. That's right. But... The story, I believe, says it's getting weaker because of sin, but that Jesus has done something that's shown that that's not going to be the final word, and that all who follow Jesus can experience in this life the beginning of the age to come when all it's going to be different than it is now. And so the fact that Jesus told Mary is this interesting little bit of evidence that makes this credible in the most interesting way. In the first century, women had no legal standing to testify in court. 
If you wanted to make a case in court, you were arguing your case, you wouldn't invite a woman in as your star witness because the whole culture was prejudiced against women and their testimony and, and their credibility. But Jesus doubles down on that. Not only is Mary a woman, but Mary used to be a woman who was possessed by seven demons. She had been a wo one of those people you see wandering the street, mentally ill, broken down, crazy, in the control of demons. Jesus picked her to be the first witness that he was alive. Now that fact leaves you two conclusions. You pick. This is all made up. There's no way. This is like, this is, that proves it's made up. Or, this is true. Nobody would have ever picked her to be the first person to tell everybody about the resurrection of Jesus unless it was true. It's a, it's a peculiar little fact of this story that a lot of people look at and go, wow, There's a, that, that's, that is hard to swallow, but that is, these people were not dumb that wrote these narratives. They understood in that time how this book would be read when they read that story. To them, that, that gave it more credibility than almost anything could have. Because people knew this wouldn't, would not be the way that people made up a story and passed it around. So the resurrection of Jesus changed everything. What they saw was Jesus crushed by injustice, by evil, by death. And when he was raised from the grave, it showed that Jesus was Lord over all those things. Those things did not have the last word. And in our day, where hope is robbed from us by injustice, by death, by evil, and we're powerless before it, we have a Savior who we can turn to, who has power over that. Secondly, oh, this one woman, Mary, her life was just covered with shame from her past. And she had hoped that Jesus was going to redefine her life. And when he died, whatever sort of personal resurrection she'd experienced, you have to wonder how much of it she felt like she could still hold on to. How much of my old shameful past still defines me? Was that all real, what Jesus did for me? You know she had to be wondering and worrying. Where is this going to leave me? Was this temporary? Am I going to slip back into that mad condition? And when she held on to Jesus, she saw he was the Lamb of God who died for her sins. That suddenly she saw his death in a different light. And this is what all of them saw. Instead of a Messiah 
who died and therefore was by definition not the Messiah, suddenly they saw this is the Messiah. And his death wasn't just a tragedy. It had a purpose. And the purpose was he died in my place. He died that I could be forgiven. He died that shame would be taken off of my life. He died a shameful death so I wouldn't have to carry shame and guilt and fear. He took it willingly for me. Then, and this is the, the biggest, I think, most immediate thing that we can experience many times is the crucifixion was a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. There were people like Cicero, the, the, the famous writer, who said you shouldn't even bring up crucifixion in polite company. That's how horrible of an idea it was and how, how horrible of a practice it was. And the pain and the suffering that people went through who were crucified was legendary and, and scary. And it was a very powerful tool of control by the, the Roman government. But Jesus showed that in his resurrection from the dead that he had power over sickness and death and pain. And everything that, that our bodies are so vulnerable to New creation was possible. The word salvation means healing. It means healing in every dimension of life. And Jesus was embodying it completely. I want to close and tell you this story. Just to give you a picture of this. Uh, back in 2008, in uh, Western Australia, which the, the, the part of, the Australia, of Australia they call the Outback, there was a, a doctor named Sean George, and, and he was a uh, he is, and and was at that time, uh, a general practitioner. Uh, he was a he he worked at a teaching hospital. He was in charge of the 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 uh, all the education of graduate and uh, undergraduate students, medical students. Uh, he ran clinics all over Western Australia, and so. Uh, at one point, he was driving uh, to a clinic to do, uh, in small towns, they didn't have doctors, so the doctors would have to drive there, and everyone would come. And so he was going about 400 kilometers away from where he lived in his, his hospital, and he was taking one of his interns, and as they were driving along, uh, uh, coming back from their, their four-hour trip there, uh, he said he started sweating. He started feeling uncomfortable. He started feeling some pain in his chest. And he's driving past this small town, and he thinks, I'm going to pull in there, because he knows the doctor. There's a doctor in this small town. There's a little clinic there. Actually, there's two doctors. And he says, I'm going to go in there, and I want to get an EKG. There's something um, you know, wrong. He goes in there. Uh, neither of the doctors are there. One's at lunch, and one's away doing a clinic in another little town. And so they do an EKG, and they say, you know, you're having a heart attack. And there's no doctor there. And so he says, please go get Dr. So-and-so from lunch and ask him to come back. And then, and then here's what happened. Uh, the pain in his chest, he said, started becoming unbearable. And his heart stopped. Now, he's on, he's on an EKG machine. And for the next 70 minutes, uh, the doctor and other people did CPR 
and cardioverted him 13 times. So most, most patients who are, whose hearts stop and you're doing CPR, they only do it for about 30 minutes because after three minutes, your brain starts dying. And CPR does not, in, in any reasonable way, uh, deal with the lack of oxygen going to your brain. It, it can keep you alive for a little while. But he's a doctor, and they, all, they know him. He, he trained their doctors. And so they're just working. And, they, and he's, he'd called his wife, and his wife is on the way driving there. So she, he was in, then uh, that 48 minutes goes by. And then they said he'd had over 4,000 cardiac compressions. And they all agreed to stop CPR and all life support. Uh, because he was in, he was flatlining, and for 37 minutes, you know, they, they just, he was, they're not doing anything to help him, uh, there's, there's no medical intervention, he, he's dead. They call asystole, and you got ho no heart, measured heartbeat, hour and a half, he's, this has gone on. His wife comes in, and they, they tell his wife, and his wife would be just like Mary at this point, and his wife is also a physician. She comes in, and they said, you know, we did everything we could. Uh, he's, you know, in, in one of the beds. And they have a, there's a website where he has a picture of this. It's, it's interesting. He's, uh, it, it, obviously, something happened. His wife goes in, and she takes his hand, and it's cold. And she's a believer. Both of them are believers. And her, she had called her family and asked them to pray. And her grandfather, who was a believer, said, you're a woman of faith. Pray and believe for a miracle. So she goes in to the hospital room where he is. She takes his hand. It's cold. You know, there's, he's still hooked up to all these machines. He's got, you know, uh, like a ventilator in his, down his throat. And they're doing everything they can to keep him alive. And he's dead. And she just prays a simple prayer. She says, Jesus, I believe in you, and Sean believes in you, and our son believes in you, and he's too young to die. Would you please do a miracle? And beep, the machine kicks in. He's got a heartbeat. It's weak, but his heart's beating, right? And his hand starts getting warm. She screams, you know, come in. Everyone runs back in, you know. And anyway, they... they they rush him to the biggest hospital nearby, uh, and they, they put a stent in, and for, for a number of days, he's, he's non-responsive, but, uh, you know, his heart's beating, and he's getting stronger, and then uh, about four days into it, he opens his eyes, and his wife screams, you know, doctor, come in here, and he closes his eyes again. The doctor says, I, you know, there's no way there's, he's, he opens his eyes. We've we resuscitated someone who's brain dead. You're going to have to accept this. She goes, he just opened his eyes. It's impossible. He can't have opened his eyes. After an hour and 37 minutes, you're not going to be able to have any brain activity, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, a little while after that, he opens his eyes again, and he keeps them open. The doctor comes in, and he, ah! <laughs> you know, they, they're all blown away. Anyway, within a couple of days, he's talking. Within uh, another day or so, He's reading his own records, and he's talking to them about what they need to do, because he's, you know, he's, a, uh, he's the head of the, the department in teaching, and within two weeks, 
He's completely recovered. No memory damage. Nothing wrong with him. And the wild thing about this is, is this is one of the rare cases where someone who's died and comes back to life, where there's this plethora of medical evidence. Because he was in a hospital and, and, and they were recording everything. And there's just pages and pages. If you want to see this, he has a website. It's called uh, Sean George, S-E-A-N-G-E-O-R-G-E dot com dot A-U. A-U is Australia. And it's got a page of hundreds of medical records and pictures and just showing the power of the name of Jesus. The power that we celebrate here on Good Friday and and. Easter Sunday, where Jesus died and rose again from the grave, and he did it for us. He did it for Mary. He did it for John. He did it for you. Uh, hey, worship guys, whoever, why don't you guys come up? We're, we're going to teach you one, a new song, just to close. You know, Easter changed everything, but it, it only changes you if you will do what Mary did, which is bow at Jesus' feet, cling to him, and surrender your life to him. The, the power of the resurrection of Jesus works in this death-resurrection pattern. And they wanted, the reason why they were so disappointed, and maybe you're disappointed in Christianity, is if, if you have an agenda for Jesus, you don't have faith in Jesus. If you surrender your life to Jesus, you embrace his agenda for you. And there's, there's some of us here, because it's every Sunday it's like this, especially on Easter, is there's lots of people who walk into churches on Easter and they're kind of just going through the momentum of I go to church on Easter. But Easter hasn't broken into your lives unless you do what Mary did, which is you kneel at Jesus' feet and you say, I surrender my agenda, Jesus, for you and I want your agenda for me. And Jesus said, and, and John said it in the first chapter of the book that we just read from, he said, as many as received him, to them he gave the power. It's that word power, like resurrection power. The power, the authority, the right to become a child of God. To experience the resurrection in your own life. So as we sing this song, why don't you stand with me? It's a, it's a new song. Uh, it's, it's by... Uh, David Crowder. Dave Crowder, the Crowder band. Uh, but then let's pray before we close. And we're going to sing this song, and then we're just dismiss everybody when the song's finished. Father, thank you for Jesus, that hope is in him. We thank you for the, the simplicity of the gospel message. It just says, if we come to him, we come to hope. If we come to him, we come to you. 
we come to you today, Jesus, and like Mary, we just kneel before you, we cling to you, and we surrender our agenda to you. And we welcome your agenda for us. And the gift of forgiveness, and the gift of hope, and the gift of freedom, that you paid for all that and more. We want to walk away today like Mary did, and we want to have this growing excitement inside us that hope brings because of our faith in you. We want to trust you to sort out everything that we wrestle with. All the mess that we've made and that we'll make, we want to put in your hands and say that, that you are our Savior and you're our Lord. We want to celebrate you now just to close our gathering this morning and we invite your presence here. Lord, to just to bring that truth home, I pray your presence would come home to every person here who's taking that step today to, to kneel before you, Jesus, like Mary, and say yes to you.